Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Less, their salary being able to pay by less than the 1%, that doesn't really affect them a whole lot, considering how wealthy they are already. Whereas somebody making 80K a year, which is a pretty respectable salary, uh you know, 5%, 10% cut into that purchasing power each year adds up. And it's just not being replaced by an increase in the value of their house, their stock market portfolio. I mean, this has been pointed out time and time again that the Fed, despite their their supposed efforts to, to fight inequality and whatnot by, by stopping recessions or, or lowering unemployment or whatnot, uh, they create a huge wealth gap or they exacerbate, if nothing else, a huge wealth gap with their easy monetary policy. It's not, it's not something that benefits the masses. It's, it's something that primarily benefits the top 1%. And this isn't, I mean, you guys know me, but for new listeners, I mean, this isn't a big socialist rant. I'm not saying, you know, my conclusion is to vote in Andrew Yang and, and let's redistribute this wealth. That's not my conclusion. Uh, somebody's going to soundbite that now and, and post it all over there. But, but uh, no, that's not my conclusion at all. You know, my conclusion is that maybe the Fed shouldn't exist. It, if nothing else, if it is going to exist, should be taken in much more uh, hawkish stance on policy and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, the other thing that, that Jerome Powell, uh, sorry, Ben Bernanke also mentioned, was praising uh, the ECB. For, for their balance sheet expansion. In particular, he, he pointed out their, their willingness to buy corporate debt. And, and that's really interesting to me. Now, the Fed has primarily dealt with uh, U.S. debt, either short-term or long-term, through their QE, through their more recent repo operations, and then in addition to that, mortgage-backed securities, which could be viewed as... Uh, you know, especially when they were first bought during the Great Recession and whatnot, it, it helped out banks, but in theory, it also served to to uh, you know increase the liquidity in the system um, and to to lower rates. I mean, you're you're buying up debt, you're creating demand for debt, and and that's going to drive up prices and drive down rates, right? And so that that happened as well. But the Fed thus far, unlike some other central banks, has not bought corporate debt, corporate bonds, nor has it bought equities, stocks. It, it has not delved into that. It hasn't been entirely a public, uh, a government affair because they have bought those mortgage-backed securities. But they haven't yet moved into the realm of stock purchases, which has been done by many uh, central banks, including the Bank of Japan, nor corporate debt, which has been done by by uh, the ECB. And and ultimately, I mean, it's we're, we're does it matter, equity versus corporate debt? I mean, it does. They're two very distinct markets, both of which are in, are in serious trouble. Uh, but, you know, 
it, they are distinct assets, right? Buying one is not going to have the same effect as buying the other. However, buying corporate debt would have very similar effects. Reason being that uh, you're you're essentially putting a lot of these corporations, which which are dealing with with uh, uh, tightening the belt, um, a high amount of debt, uh, not really increasing profits a whole lot and whatnot. Uh, what, what some people would call or term zombie corporations, corporations that barely have enough to, to service their debt, let alone pay it off in terms of, of you know revenue or profit share, uh, you, you're going to keep those companies on, on life support. But furthermore, there's a lot of companies, even, even zombie corporations, that over the last 10 years have bought back a lot of their stock. And, and some of them have done it on cash, but a lot of them have done it through borrowing. They borrow money, oftentimes at a very low rate, and they buy back their own stock, causing their stock to move up. It, it enriches stockholders, executives, you know, anyone that, that holds that stock. And that's been a big part of this huge uh, you know, bull market in stocks over the last 10 years. I mean, uh, stocks have been bought back uh, in, in the trillions over that time span. And, and buying corporate debt essentially enables that, right? I mean, it could get so bad as to see uh, a, a corporation, you know, issue a certain amount of debt and then use that money to buy back their own stocks, buy back their own shares. And then that debt is, is you know, instantly bought up by the Federal Reserve. It's not that the Fed is necessarily going to forgive them or something like that. But what's important about that is that they're taking a certain amount of that of that corporate debt off the market. They're increasing the demand for it, which drives up prices, drive down rates, which enables these companies to borrow even more. I mean, it's the same is true across the board. We're talking about uh, government debt, private debt. I mean, lowering rates, driving up prices of this debt ultimately has the effect of causing those entities, those individuals to borrow more, right? Which is always what the Fed wants, more and more debt creation. How many times have I said it? And, and this relates perfectly to, to QE, to repo market operations, to buying corporate debt, that today's stock market, and to some extent today's economy, is nothing more than a product of more and more liquidity and more and more credit growth, debt growth, right? The Fed needs that to keep this to keep this charade going. And, and if we slipped into a recession, they certainly would need a, a huge amount of debt creation to, to try and get us out of that recession, at least from their eyes, that's what they need. So, I mean, this is really would be an important thing for the Fed to do. Uh, 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 not important in the sense that I think it needs to happen, but more so important in the sense that this would be groundbreaking. This could potentially pave the way for for the Fed uh, uh, buying stocks, right? That could be in their future as well. Uh, I mean, at some point, we're basically going to be devolving into to helicopter money to where the Fed's basically delivering money through maybe different channels, but delivering money straight to the economy, straight to the people, right? Not even buying debt anymore, potentially, just straight up printing money and giving it to, to people. And and if you're thinking that that could be hugely inflationary, of course, you're, you're right. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I think this is, I wanted to take some time to talk about this, not only to to debunk some of these policies before they even get started, 
not only to talk about the the way the Fed has driven this wealth gap, but also to to relate it to what's likely to happen in the future. I don't know how often Ben Bernanke and Jerome Powell talk. Uh, what I can tell you is that we have a certain somebody in office right now that would love to get rid of Jerome Powell. He's, I mean, he's not going to during his first term, but would love to get rid of Jerome Powell and have somebody like Ben Bernanke in his position. At least I would surmise that. And if, you know, past examples of, of you know, past, you know, Fed chairman or, or Fed members talking about what potentially could happen in the future, uh, if, if that, you know, past examples of those predictions coming true mean anything, um, I think we should be prepared for the Fed to do things like buy corporate debt, uh, a ton of quantitative easing and balance sheet expansion, you know, with the with the uh, goal of, of increasing uh, liquidity, driving up debt prices, driving down yields, etc. cetera. Uh, but, I mean, of course, the end result of all this is going to be inflation. You know, even right now, uh, a lot of very smart people with, with far better knowledge of it than I uh, and better models have, have put, you know, inflation probably around 5%, maybe even higher right now. But with the current debt monetization scheme, uh, I mean, let's not forget that the Fed is already doing, already doing QE to the tune of $60 billion a month, uh, plus, you know, repo market operations. And, and, I mean, inflation could go much higher. But if we move into a, a serious recession and we see a, you know, a QE tripled from where it's at right now and, and rates brought to zero, uh, you better believe that we'll see a high amount of inflation, maybe not by, by government standards. They tend to, to totally miss the mark when trying to measure inflation. But in, in real terms, the, the cost of housing, food, uh, uh, fuel, uh, health care, education, all of that is going to continue to inflate at ridiculous rates. And the people that ultimately benefit the most from this are the wealthy because they're the ones that hold these stocks that are also being inflated higher and higher. Same thing goes for the real estate and whatnot. But who really suffers is the, the average Joe, you know, the middle class, the working class, because of just this, this crushing inflation that, that I believe is just going to continue to crush us in years to come. So as always, I'd like to thank every single one of you for, for tuning in to today's podcast. Uh, hit that like button subscribe if you're on youtube if you're in the podcast world i'd love if you would subscribe you know i am continuing to try and push as many of you guys away from youtube into the podcast realm so maybe double in the comment section i will you know i'll leave a comment uh with a link to my apple podcast to my spotify uh to to see if you want to follow me over there reason being is is you know i'm kind of sick of, of youtube youtube algorithm youtube's ability to basically shadow ban or straight up ban or demonetize uh, individuals' voices, opinions that they disagree with. Um, sure, they're a corporation. They, in my opinion, have every right to do so. But that doesn't mean that we should just sit back and let it happen. Uh, so, so it's sort of my attempts to, to diversify away from YouTube. And, and to be honest, I've been having a ton of success over in the podcast world. A ton of you guys have, have changed over to to. Uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or what have you, uh, but but not enough. I'm I'm still setting a goal of of by the end of January, on average 700 listeners uh, per day. 
put that in perspective, I'm, I'm averaging now probably between 450 and, and 500. So I have a bit of a ways to go. But I have no doubt that in the next couple of weeks I, I can reach that because I have some of the best subscribers on YouTube. Um, so great are some of you guys that, that you're willing to, to leave YouTube, at least for my content. So as always, I'd like to thank every one of you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in to today's podcast. And God bless. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. So today I want to take some time to talk about uh, some statements former Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke made in a blog post. Yeah, a, a, a blog post. We're talking about a blog post today. But but it is by a former Fed Chairman. Of course, Ben Bernanke uh, came into uh, that position, uh, what was it, probably 2005 you know, prior to the Great Recession, he was the Fed chairman through the Great Recession and gave up that position uh, a, a number of years later, uh, 2012, 2013, when when uh, Janet Yellen ultimately took over. Uh, and then Janet Yellen kept that position until uh, going into 2018 when Jerome Powell took over for that. So the reason I'm talking about this is, is you know, there's always these individuals in the political realm, voters uh, and whatnot, that, that believe that it doesn't really matter who you vote for because when it's all said and done, all the candidates are pretty similar, that, that all the recent presidents are fairly similar. Now, I mean, obviously there's differences in the way they go about things, and I do think that there are some political differences, but I do understand that uh, sometimes it's oftentimes said with with a with a, a bit of frustration uh, I get that I get where they're coming from there is some difference though from president to president and there is some difference from fed chairman to fed chairman with that being said they in many ways are cut from the same cloth and and what I mean by that is that one fed chairman to the other, they do have different styles. One is oftentimes more dovish or more hawkish than the other. However, I would say that as a whole, Fed chairman, especially the past three, uh, Jerome Powell, Janet Yellen, and Ben Bernanke, they are far more similar than our, our past three presidents who, who call themselves a Republican, a Democrat, and and now a, a Republican again, uh, on on the side of, of the Fed chairman and Federal Reserve, they're all very similar in their economic viewpoints. One may be a little bit more Keynesianist than the other, but but as a whole, when when that belief is actually put into practice, put into policy through interest rates, QE, balance sheet, all that, it, they turn out pretty darn similar. You know, that's kind of one of the 
the and I promise I'll get to these statements by by Ben Bernanke here in a second. But that's kind of one of the secrets about economics and and the Federal Reserve. It is there. There is some minutia that they disagree about. There is some disagreement within the Fed, within this kind of academic economics uh, and whatnot. However, they are far more similar than most people realize. And, and what's crazy about it is most people realize that there's more than one type of economics, that, that economics can be uh, skewed much like political belief can be. And yet, what we have in the Fed... If you look at the different members, if you look at the the chairman, is is yes, there's they're on a spectrum of, of hawkishness to dovishness and whatnot, but there's a lot of homogeneity, meaning they're all they're not all the same, but a lot of them are pretty similar. It would be like if we had uh, a Congress that was all basically liberal or all basically conservative, like. Yeah, you're going to have some Mitch McConnells, and then you're going to have some Rand Pauls, you know, uh, both from Kentucky, actually, but, but on you know very different sides of that kind of conservative spectrum. Uh, one's more libertarian, one's a little bit more centrist. Kind of the same is true for, for the Fed, but you don't have any radical Fed members, nor do you have any radical uh, Fed chairman, and, and they're all sort of on the same side, even if they disagree at times. I think that's important to keep in mind because historically what these past chairmen and women have said uh, oftentimes will influence future Fed policy. I mean, it's it's a widely known fact that the Fed chairman, uh, Fed members love to talk. In fact, in, in most months, most years, it's their primary policy tool. They talk more than they do anything else, more than they change interest rates, more than they change the balance sheet. They talk and they talk and they try. You know, some do it better than others. Some are more blunt than others. Some are trying to disguise their words. But but anyways, Ben Bernanke in this uh, blog post is talking about the Fed and their policy options uh, going forward. And And basically, he comes to the conclusion that... Going into the next recession, the Fed should be all right with the uh, the policy tools that they have, i.e., uh, lowering interest rates and and expanding the balance sheet. And and he even goes so far as to say that you know, right now, so I'll put it this way: there's this idea that that in a recession, if when an economy when the U.S. economy slips into a recession, the Fed should or needs to cut interest rates by a certain percentage point in order to prevent that recession from getting really bad. It's what they did during the Great Recession. It's what they did when the dot-com bubble popped. It's, it's common practice. And, and there's some disagreement about just how much they have to cut interest rates. It obviously depends on the severity of the recession. But I think most people agree that today, with interest rates, you know, the Fed funds rate under 2%, that that's not enough in terms of interest rate cuts. It's not enough room if they were to take them to zero to to stop a recession, to stop it from getting very, very bad very quickly. 
And yet Ben Bernanke has full faith in these tools because according to him, uh, quantitative easing is going to make up for that. That quantitative easing can provide as much as basically 3% uh, cut in, in interest rates, effective interest rates by you know, balance sheet expansion. Now, I, I'm sure I know why he's saying this, because again, there's this common refrain that there's a certain, oftentimes, 5% that the Fed needs to cut interest rates by in order to, to stop a recession. And, and hey, look, we're around 2% now, and, and Ben Bernanke believes that, that quantitative easing could add another 3% in basically effective easing, even though it wouldn't be lowering the Fed funds rate. But, but of course, the problem with that is that, well, <laughs> during the Great Recession, the Fed did have to cut interest rates by 5%, plus balance sheet expansion. That So, so I mean, what is the conclusion here? That the Fed cut rates by, by 8%, 7 10%? I mean, given how long QE went on for? Is that what Ben Bernanke is basically saying here? That we, you know... We basically brought rates deeply negative, negative two, negative three, even though the Fed funds rate was at zero. I mean, if anything, that makes me feel as though the American people were swindled in the sense that people don't even know just how negative uh, rates more or less were, never mind the fact that that real rates were negative for basically that entire period of time because inflation was positive. But, but also he's saying that they require basically like 8% uh, uh, interest rate cuts or, or you know, drop in the rates between the Fed funds rate and between balance sheet expansion. That's huge. 8%? I mean, it goes to show just how bad the Great Recession was, but it also goes to show just how poorly prepared the Fed is today. Because the Fed funds rates at two percent, not five and change, in the balance sheet is already at you know, over four trillion dollars with with the recent expansion. You know, prior to prior to the first round of quantitative easing, it was less than one trillion. And of course, the risk with raising the balance sheet over and over and over again is is that eventually what you're basically doing is monetization of debt. It's what they've done already. But, but further increasing the balance sheet would just be a further monetization of debt. And the big risk with that is inflation, which I'm sure the Fed would love to have more of. Not because inflation is low, but because according to their indicators, it's low and, and, and whatnot. But, but the end result of this, and, and this was, of course, you know, presented over on, on Zerhedge, the end result of all of this is that the rich get richer, what, why is that the case? Well, I mean, low interest rates, whether it's through quantitative easing and the liquidity provided there or through Fed funds rate cuts, it it basically has the effect of propping up assets that are predominantly held by, you know, the top 10%, the top 1%. Stocks, uh, corporate debt, which I'll get to actually more here in a second, uh, real estate, uh, other financial assets. I mean, those are really what primarily benefits. What what does not benefit is the the average worker. It doesn't benefit the average worker, the average citizen, because they have to deal with the ensuing inflation. You know, even somebody that makes you know 
80k a year here in the United States, and and maybe stocks away a fair bit for retirement in in a 401k or or something else, you know, in the stock market. Well, guess what? Their portfolio is probably going to see a decent rise. You know, if that QE has the effect that it generally does, and in causing stocks to move up. But guess what else? The the amount that their wealth is going to increase is, is going to be minuscule compared to the 1% who owns a huge amount of those types of assets that are going to be inflated by the Fed, right? And and their wages, being able to buy 